The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Slaves of God. Slaves of God, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has been confronting an unbiblical or unbiblical notions of grace. Paul has been confronting, Paul has been dealing with abuses of grace. Uh, There were those in the first century who would have objected to the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. They would have objected to the gospel. They would have stood opposed to the gospel. Standing opposed to the gospel uh, and saying at the same time that they were saved by Jesus Christ, they believed in the gospel, and yet standing opposed to the gospel. Some of those opposed to the gospel, those that Paul now is battling as it were, some would have objected on the basis that justification by grace alone through faith would simply encourage lawlessness. If right standing with God comes entirely apart from works of the law, then that's going to encourage lawlessness, Paul. You're going to open up the floodgates of sin. You're going to have a bunch of people who profess to be God-fearers, who profess to be the people of God, and they're going to be living in, in lawlessness. If it's true that where sin abounds, that's chapter 5, verse 20, then grace abounds even more through the gospel, then why not simply continue in sin that grace might abound? You see the objection, you see the accusation, right? It's under these terms that the the legalistic groups like the Judaizers, for example, would add works of the law, namely circumcision, to correct what they saw as lawlessness inherent to the gospel of justification by faith. They would add law to, quote-unquote, correct errors they saw in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many others, many, many others, who have abused the gospel for the sake of their sin, not for the perceived sake of holiness, as the Pharisee or the legalist might do, but they've abused the gospel in the same way for the sake of their own sin. Many, many who have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, into licentiousness. And it's this abuse, I think, that's primarily the error of our day. Primarily the error that we see all around us, everywhere we turn, professing churches given over to this error. And you hear professing Christians now today speak of the burden, the burden of obedience, right? The burden of, if you've heard this term before, performanceism, as though professing Christians in our day are just performing, they're working so hard that we're tiring them out under the gospel. (laughs) What an absurd notion that is. It's the error of antinomianism, Antinomianism, it comes under various terms, easy believism, cheap grace, or the like. Antinomianism is essentially against the law-ism. It's lawlessness-ism. Antinomians are those who profess to be Christians through faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they make a practice of lawlessness. They make a practice of ongoing sin in their so-called Christian life. And they often make a practice of that lawlessness in the name of grace. I can live how I want to live. I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. 
Doesn't matter how you live. Holiness in the life of a Christian is optional, they would say, because we're justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. We can live however we want to live. And though many, many today would not be so brazen as to say something so ungodly out of their mouths, to say those things out loud, they demonstrate that they believe those things by how they live. That's exactly what they actually believe. And you can see it in how they live their so-called Christian lives. When presented with a circumstance, I want you to think with me about this. When presented with a circumstance, right, where their will comes into direct conflict with the revealed will of God, what do they choose? Their own will, right? When their will when this person's will comes into direct, that's where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Right? When your will comes into direct conflict with the revealed will of God, what is it that you choose? Your will or God's will? This basic error, the error of antinomianism, comes in many forms today, and all of those forms represent the broad road that leads to destruction. That is the broad road that leads to destruction. Those who have chosen to walk that road, right? And they may have chosen point by point by point, circumstance by circumstance by circumstance. This is the way that I'm going to live. My will, not God's will, right? And by the course of their life through, you could say, we'll look at this in the text in a moment, individual decisions, if you will, individual choices, if you will, they have chosen to walk that road Many of them who have chosen that confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And they, you, they do not live as though Jesus Christ were Lord. And he will say to them in the day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, make a practice of lawlessness. Well, Paul, in Romans chapter 6, is sought to combat these abuses of grace. Paul is dealing with these abuses of grace. And he's a, a dealing with abuses of the gospel in this way by dealing with a Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. Paul's concern is a Christian's ongoing relationship to sin. And that ongoing relationship to sin in the context of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's battling these abuses by referencing, by teaching us about our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer has been united to Jesus Christ through faith. In his union with Jesus Christ, he has died to his old life of sin. The old man has been crucified, and he has died to that life of sin in the likeness of Christ's death to sin. He has been raised to walk in newness of life by the Spirit in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. And so then, the grace that saves us not only saves us, the grace that saves us also changes us. Do you see? Transforms us such that far from living a life that could be characterized as servitude to sin, far from living a life that could be considered or characterized as slavery to sin, the Christian life is one of ongoing and increasing resistance to sin. Resistance against sin. A life that is free from sin's slavery, free from sin's dominance, free from sin's mastery, a life in which we are now free to pursue holiness to pursue righteousness, to pursue obedience. Grace is no excuse for life of sin. You'll find no quarter for sin on the pages of Scripture. 
There is no excuse for a life of sin, certainly not the grace of God found in the gospel. Now, these abuses of grace or these abuses of the gospel are being addressed from the standpoint of anticipated objections. Paul is anticipating and then answering these foolish notions of grace. And he's doing so through the use of questions. The first objection answered in verses 1 through 14 was essentially this. If God's grace abounds to us in our sin, if God pours out his grace to us in our sin, then why not simply continue in sin? Right? Why not simply live? Why can't we continue to live a life of sin if God is simply being gracious to us in our sin? Doesn't that glorify God? <laughs> Doesn't that glorify his grace? Doesn't that glorify his work in the gospel? Well, the second objection is like it. Slightly different, though. And I want you to see that. The second objection is answered beginning in verse 15. And the objection there is essentially this. If believers are no longer under the law, as you've said, Paul, then why not simply continue to live in sin since we're not under the law any longer? You see, from both angles, it's why can't I live in sin? Why can't I have my sin, right? From both angles. But the second objection, slightly differently. Paul has said, Paul, you said we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, if we're no longer under law, then why not simply continue to sin? If law has no bearing on the life of a Christian, if I'm not under law's commanding power, and I'm on, nah, that's what they would say, I'm not under law's commanding power, then I can simply live as I want to live. What then, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul's answer here is equally emphatic, isn't it? Certainly not. May it never be, God forbid. You'll find no excuse for sin in the scriptures. You've said, Paul, you've said that our justification has nothing to do with our obedience to the law. Our right standing with God is not maintained or sustained by our obedience to the law. You've explained that our standing with God is secure through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, and that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. We're no longer under the condemning power of the law. We're under the superabounding operations of his grace. So then it doesn't matter, Paul, does it? how we live. We can sin as we please. Paul answers, that is absolutely foolish, absolutely absurd, absolutely not. May it never be, God forbid. Now, I've planned for us to consider this objection Paul raises in verse 15. I've planned for us to consider this text under four headings. First, a primary concern, verse 15. Second, a general principle, verse 16. Third, a righteous response, and that followed by a clear contrast, right? Paul's primary concern, a general principle, a righteous response, those in Rome, and a clear contrast. So now, as we seek to further understand the Q&A that begins in verse 15, we open with Paul's primary concern. Primary concern. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now think with me. In light of what you've been saying, Paul, having been truly converted to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, having been justified by grace through faith in Christ, having been reconciled to God through the substitutionary death of Christ on my behalf in my place, having now been conveyed, as it were, transferred from being under the law to now being under the outpouring of God's grace, can't I now live in a pattern of sin? Aren't we now 
in this status, in this condition, aren't we now able to live a life that might be characterized by slavery or servitude to sin? Certainly, I don't have to be concerned with sin any longer. If I'm in this position, why am I still concerned with sin? I actually had someone come up to me one time and ask me that and almost parrot this very objection. Right? If I've been taken out from under law and I'm now under God's grace, why do I have to ask for forgiveness? Why do I have to pray for forgiveness? Why do I have to fight sin? What are you talking about, right? This is not an imaginary question, is it? This is not a fictional question. This is a real question. This is a real concern. This is not a trifle concern. This is a very important concern. You can see it's the same basic issue that Paul is addressing all along. The ongoing pattern of sin or the ongoing relationship of a Christian to his sin is just presented now from a different perspective. Very, very important to understand in your Christian life. Sin is deceptive. Sin can lead you down a primrose path to hell. We need to understand what Paul is teaching in this text and apply this teaching to our hearts and minds. Just as there were essentially two groups that twisted or perverted the gospel on this issue in Paul's day, there are essentially two groups that pervert or corrupt the gospel on this point in our day. Essentially the same groups. Legalists and antinomians. Legalists and antinomians. The legalist, known otherwise as a religious formalist or a moralist, he looks at his Christianity, his so-called Christianity, his religion, like a Pharisee. We must maintain moral or ethical standards through the law. We relate to God. He wouldn't say that we relate to God through grace or relate to God through the gospel. We relate to God through the law. God is well pleased with us through our obedience to the law. God will condemn us due to our disobedience to the law. We relate to God entirely through the law. Any salvation, they would say, any salvation that does not emphasize some level of obedience to the law as the means by which we attain to right standing with God, any salvation, so-called salvation, that doesn't allow for that is dangerous. Dangerous. It's going to promote lawlessness. Justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, is dangerous. Because it's going to promote lawlessness. That legalist would state the question in verse 15 this way. If what you're saying is true, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then why not sin it up, everybody? Right? Do you hear the sarcasm in the way that he asked the question? Why not sin it up? We're no longer under law. We're under grace. The antinomian, the antinomian has the opposite concern. We're not under law. You said it yourself, Paul then it doesn't matter how we live. doesn't matter how I live. We can live as we please. And they turn the grace of God into lawlessness, into licentiousness. Now, as much as the true gospel, the biblical gospel, exposes these two errors, preaching the true gospel will expose you to both of these accusations. If you're preaching an accurate biblical gospel, you're going to be exposed to these two accusations. Think about it with me. The legalist is going to charge you with promoting antinomianism. You're going to get accused by the legalist for preaching antinomianism, lawlessness. The antinomian is going to charge you with legalism. You mentioned the O word, obedience. <laughs> legalism. 
right? But if the gospel that you're preaching is a true gospel, is the biblical gospel, then it exposes both of these errors with the searing spotlight of God's word. It exposes both of these errors and it guards us from these two errors. An accurate biblical gospel protects you from the ditch of legalism and the ditch of antinomianism. Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, and if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned. Incidentally, if you think about this, it requires, doesn't it then? It requires that we spend some thoughtful time in our evangelism to give a full presentation of the facts. You can't give a quick cartoon version of the gospel devoid of content and then call for a decision and expect that that is going to be an accurate presentation or an accurate reception of the gospel. It's like so many churches do today. They don't preach the gospel during the sermon. They'll give a couple of seconds at the end for a quick cartoon version of what they call the gospel and ask for a a decision. The message can be simple. The message can be simple, but the message must be sufficiently full. The message must be sufficiently complete. Believe in Jesus is not sufficient. Believe in Jesus for what? Believe in Jesus about what? What are you trusting him for? Right? What is the content or the substance of your faith? It's not just an ethereal believing, like you believe in Abraham Lincoln, right? Believe in Jesus for what? Jesus loves you. Not sufficient. Right? Not sufficient. You're going to have to confront the sinner with the law. You're going to have to confront the sinner with his current condition. It has to be done. It has to be done. You're going to have to say hard things. Gird up your loins, right? Play the man. (laughs) You're going to have to say hard things. You're going to have to talk about Christ's substitution at the cross. You're going to have to discuss the biblical response of repentance and faith. Preaching the gospel is not merely having a theological discussion. He and I got in a discussion about whether Adam had a belly button and I I was preaching the gospel. You weren't preaching the gospel to him. That's not the gospel. Preaching the gospel is not merely inviting someone to church. Preaching the gospel, in other words, you you can't justify yourself that I've obeyed God in the Great Commission by simply inviting someone to church, right? By simply having a theological discussion. Preaching the gospel is not merely sharing your testimony. There is a content to our faith. Someone must be brought under the law to understand that they're a sinner. They've rebelled against God. They're enemies of God by their wicked works. They need to be brought under the law to know their condition, and then the glorious grace of the gospel must be presented in its fullness to them, right? The person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sinner's response of repentance and faith. You have to understand. So what then, Paul says, so what then? Shall we continue in sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Paul answers the question, certainly not, absolutely not. So then, having stated his primary concern, Paul then appeals to a general principle. Look at verse 16. Paul appeals to a general principle. Do you not know? In other words, this is common sense, right? This should be common sense. This is something that we should understand, something that we should know. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience 
leading to righteousness. The general principle is this. You are a slave of what you obey. That's the principle. You are a slave. I'm not a slave. You are a slave of what you obey. Hear the word of God, right? You're a slave of what you obey. Now notice first, the principle presupposes that we're all slaves. We're all slaves. Paul's concern is not slavery to sin versus freedom to live as we please, to live as ourselves. Paul's concern is not slavery to sin versus our personal autonomy to live as the rulers of our own lives. We're all slaves, That's the given in verse 16. We're all slaves. To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. Paul's concern is not the fact of our slavery. Paul's concern is the nature of our slavery. The nature of our slavery. Notice next, notice next, the nature of our slavery is discerned by who or what it is that we obey. What is the nature of our slavery? We are either one, slaves of sin leading to death, Or two, we are slaves of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, you know the axiom. Do you not know? It's common sense. This is something, this is a little experiment. This is a little uh, self-examination that you can take yourself through right now, right? Something that we should know, something that's axiomatic. Who are you obeying? Are you obeying sin leading to death? Or are you a slave of obedience leading to righteousness? You are one or the other. You are a slave. You are a slave. Who are you obeying? What is the nature of your slavery? In other words, a habitual pattern of sinning demonstrates or manifests a condition of slavery to sin. Hear what I'm saying. A habitual pattern of sinning demonstrates a condition of slavery to sin. A habitual pattern of obedience demonstrates or manifests a condition of slavery to obedience. As James says, when sinful desire has conceived, that desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is sin leading to death. If you demonstrate by your actions a habitual pattern of sin, you are manifesting through your actions that you are a slave of sin leading to death. Leading to death. Not just spiritual death. You're already spiritual dead in sin, spiritually dead in sin. Not just physical death, but what the Bible calls eternal death or the second death. So also then, so also slavery to God, verse 22 Slavery to God manifests itself in a pattern of obedience, bringing forth its fruit to holiness and the end of that pattern, everlasting life. Do you see? Everlasting life. Now, first, that principle presupposes that we're all slaves. Second, Paul is concerned with the nature of our slavery. That nature of our slavery can be discerned by who it is or what it is that you obey. Notice finally, notice finally, the choices that you make Choices that are carried out in accord with your will are not free or independent of one another. The choices that you make constitute a pattern. The choices that you make constitute a precedent. What does that mean? Paul speaks of slavery. In verse 16, Paul speaks of slavery to the one that leads to death. Slavery that leads to death. Paul speaks of slavery to the other 
that leads to life. That's why we use the language of habit or pattern. Why the Bible uses the language of pattern with respect to our relationship to sin. Now think with me. A genuine Christian who has been freed from sin's power, a genuine Christian who has been freed from sin's dominion, as that Christian then pursues obedience in accord with his renewed will, in accord with his new heart, as he pursues obedience in the strength of God's indwelling spirit, every act of obedience, every step of obedience taken in faith, Every step of obedience in the power of the Spirit serves to strengthen, serves to solidify his resolve, serves to mature and grow his defense against temptation. It serves to reinforce a habit or a pattern of obedience leading to righteousness such that that habit or pattern could be or manifest or could be demonstrated to be that he is indeed a slave to righteousness, a slave of God, and he will have his fruit to holiness, the end of which is everlasting life. Do you see? It matters what you do in each circumstance. It matters the decisions that you make when you're faced with temptation. Do you see? Every one of those, a step, if you will, in or toward obedience leading to life. However, However, if that professing Christian who claims to be freed from sin's power, if that professing Christian who claims to be free from the dominion of sin, if that professing Christian begins to sin in rebellion against God and in rebellion to God's word, every act of sin, every step taken in rebellion against God serves to weaken his resolve, serves to undermine his determination. Every act of sin only serves to strengthen sin's determination to exert its influence over him again. You see? Ongoing sin in a Christian's life, in a professing Christian's life, will serve to weaken and will eventually destroy any defense that he has against temptation. In time, his supposed choice of that sin will no longer be his choice. Each act of sin only serving to reinforce a habit. Each act of sin only serving to reinforce a pattern of disobedience that eventually confirms or eventually demonstrates that he, in fact, was never really freed from sin in the first place never really freed from sin's dominion at all. He is still in the bonds of his iniquity, that pattern demonstrating that he is still a slave to sin. Sin has no authority, has no dominion over the genuine believer. The one who is genuinely in Christ, united to Christ through faith, sin has no authority, has no dominion over that believer. However, if that professed believer having once thought himself to be dead indeed to sin, then turns and gives himself over to a pattern of sin, he must conclude that his profession of faith is a sham. He must eventually conclude that, right? His pattern, his habit manifesting that he was never freed from sin in the first place never genuinely saved to begin with. He must confess that he is a slave to sin once again, 
And the end of that tragic path is death. The end of that tragic path is the horrors of hell that await him. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, when the evil spirit returns to find that house empty, swept, and in order, that one who thought to turn to Christ, he'll bring along seven others more evil than himself, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Your actions, brothers and sisters, that's Paul's concern. Your actions are constituting a pattern a pattern that either strengthens or weakens your defense against sin. Frederick Godet, a commentator, said this, listen, every act of the will, whether in the direction of good or of evil, as that action passes into reality, it creates or strengthens a tendency which drags man with increasing force till it becomes altogether irresistible. We're given over to slavery, right? Given over to slavery. Every free act then, to a certain degree, determines the future. Does it matter what you do in this particular instance of temptation? You better believe it does. Does it matter your response to temptation, to every temptation that comes along? You better believe that it does. Sometimes in the face of temptation or the onslaught of temptation or continuous temptations in the Christian life, we can grow weary, we can grow negligent, we can grow absent-minded, we can grow unconcerned while sin just wreaks havoc in our life or while we're overcome by whatever that sin is or whatever that temptation is. And each action only serves to reinforce the pattern, do you see? In other words... Your decision to obey sin or your decision to obey righteousness is a precedent, as it were. A precedent that will exert influence in its respective direction, either toward further sin or either toward further obedience. It will exact more from you as your master. You're a slave of one or the other. You're a slave of sin leading to death or you're a slave of obedience leading to righteousness. You're a slave of one or the other. Who's ma- what master are you serving? If you continue to serve this master, it's going to continue to exert greater and greater influence over you until you're no, you no longer are choosing. <laughs> you're in slavery. Or you're headed this direction as this master exerts more and more influence over you. It's this principle which Paul applies either in sin, either to sin or to obedience. Do you not know? (laughs) Do you not know? Examine yourself. This is what Owen, John Owen meant by the phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You notice there's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. Be killing sin. That means moving in a habitual pattern in a direction of holiness, in a direction of righteousness, in the direction of obedience, resisting temptation, presenting your members as instruments of righteousness to God, right? Be moving that direction, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, exerting greater and greater influence over you, exerting greater and greater mastery over you. When Paul refers to us as presenting ourselves as slaves to obey, we present ourselves as slaves to obey or we present ourselves as slaves to disobey, 
right? Paul's referring there to the first steps taken in either one of these two opposite directions. You're presented with a circumstance, you're presented with a temptation, I can go this way or that way. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to present yourselves as slaves to obey God, right? Slaves to obedience leading to righteousness, the fruit of holiness, the end of that eternal life, or are you presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness? Are you presenting yourself as a slave of disobedience, a slave of sin leading to death? In your circumstance, what is it that you're doing, right? What is it that you're doing? Paul's referring to the first steps taken in either of these two directions. They're opposite directions. We must submit ourselves to one of these two directions. And as we submit ourselves to one of these two directions, we submit ourselves with increasing regularity. We submit ourselves with increasing consistency. And the more we come, the more that we present ourselves in one of these two directions with increasing regularity and increasing consistency, the more that we come under the dominating force or influence of that direction, the more that our slavery to one or the other is made manifest. Does that make sense? We must begin, we must begin by making a decision in pursuit of one end or the other. What's it going to be? Will you obey or will you disobey? You see how like diametrically opposed all of this is to the, to the notion that I'm no longer at all, I'm under grace. I can sin it up as I please. No, right? No. In the language of chapter 6, verse 16, to whom you will present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are present active, you are that one's slave whom you obey. With your heart and your will driving your actions, driving your choices, you are either acting as a slave of sin and that increasing tendency leading you along a primrose path to death and hell or you are acting as a slave of obedience and that increasing fruit of the Spirit leading you to increasing righteousness, bearing the fruit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord and the end of that path, everlasting life. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Robert Martin said this, in proportion as you yield yourself to one or the other of those principles, you will fall more and more under the sway of that principle so that Paul can say, you are or you become the servants of him whom you obey. And these last words characterize a more advanced state in which the bond of dependence has formed and the will has lost all power of resistance and exists only to serve or to satisfy the master of its choice. Man is created by God. Man was never meant to have, nor will he ever have, absolute freedom or absolute autonomy. You are a slave. Whose slave are you? Are you serving sin or are you serving God? There is no neutrality. Choose to look at pornography and eventually you no longer be choosing. Choose to give in to your anger and soon you will no longer choose to do so. 
justify your sin with some veneer of acceptability, well, it's not my gift. Or I just don't have the time. I'm very busy. Soon you will no longer feel the need to justify your sin at all. Choose now while you still can. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He's describing there this very hardening that takes place as you give yourself more and more and more to these choices wherein you pursue disobedience, sin to death. We're hardened. The conscience becomes seared. Our will becomes undermined or weakened. And those that were once choices eventually no longer become choices at all. We have been partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, our being partakers of Christ is made manifest by holding our confidence steadfast to the end, being slaves of obedience. Luke chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. And listen, don't despise those exhortations. When a brother comes to you and exhorts you, accept that humbly. Don't run the other direction. You turn a corner at the grocery store, and you see him turn the corner at the opposite end, and you flee, shrieking. <laughs> Don't run away. We should receive those exhortations. Exhort one another daily. That's loving, right? That's loving when someone comes to you. Don't despise those brotherly exhortations. I remember thinking uh, when I was lost that turning to Christ would mean giving up my life as I knew it. I'm going to have to give up. I'm going to have to give up my comfort. I'm going to have to do things I don't want to do, right? I'm giving up. I have to give up. Christian life is about giving up, giving up all those things that I want. I wasn't, I was, I wasn't ready to give them up. <laughs> I didn't want to give them up. I wanted to hold on. I wanted to, in my mind, I wanted to hold on to my life, my life, the things that I wanted, the things that I wanted to do, the things that entertained or pleased me. I wanted to hold on to those things. I viewed the Christian life or following Jesus Christ is some form of bondage. That I would have to relinquish certain freedoms in order to follow him. That's a lie from Satan. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is a lie. It is a lie. That's a lie. A deceptive, insidious, deadly, wicked lie that is cultivated by a world system that is under the sway of the wicked one. If you think that way, I'm not going to turn to Christ because I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give up this or give up that. I'm not ready. If you think that way, you've been deceived. You are deceived. You are in slavery to a sin. And the, the insidious deception of that slavery is such that you don't realize it's slavery. You're being peddled, right? Shoved down your throat exactly what you want. And why is it that you want it? Because you're a slave to your sin. 
you're a slave to sin. That sin leads to death. It's a slavery that is so pervasive that it dominates your heart and mind, dominates your will, dominates your choices. It enslaves you by giving you exactly what you want. It enslaves you by convincing you that what you want is harmless. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's like a drug, right? It's a drug that you're addicted to that is killing you. Literally, you put that into your veins. It is destroying you from the inside out, but you, you got to have it. You got to have it. That's what this is. That's what this world is. That's what this life is. That's what your slavery to sin is like. You're injecting yourself with a deadly drug that is killing you from the inside, and you've got to have it. You've got to have it. You can't do without it. The proof of that is that you will not turn to righteousness. You will not turn to that which is good. You will not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not turn to God. You will not turn in repentance because you've got to have your sin. In turning to Jesus Christ in faith, you are giving up. What you are giving up in turning to Jesus Christ by faith is that slavery that will and is destroying you. (laughs) That is destroying you and will ultimately destroy you. And you are then set free from slavery or bondage to those things you think are good for you or those things you think you want. You're set free from bondage to those things to pursue what you really want with a new heart and new affections and new desires. You're set free to pursue righteousness as a slave of Jesus Christ. And just as slavery to sin was an enslavement to fleshly and carnal desires that are killing you, so slavery to Christ is an enslavement to that which you desire above all else. And how is that possible? It's because you're given a new heart. You're made a new creation in Christ. You see how this general principle answers Paul's primary concern in verse 15, right? Grace does not mean that the law of God is simply set aside. Grace does not mean that obedience is now optional in the life of a Christian. Grace does not mean that we're now free, autonomous individuals, and we can now live in sovereign rule over our own lives. No, right? Under grace, as we discussed last week, under grace means to be freed from the dominion of sin. To be under grace is to be freed from the condemning power of the law. To be under grace is to be right in right standing with God through the person and work of God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. To be under grace does not mean that the law is set aside or that somehow we're free now from the law's authority to distinguish our conduct as either righteous or unrighteous. To be under grace, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, means that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To be under grace means that we are no longer required to attain righteousness through the law for salvation. We're no longer required to attain to that righteousness. Why? Because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. You attempt to attain righteousness through the law, you are under the curse. To be under grace does not mean that the law no longer has authority to govern our conduct as a rule of life. For those who serve the Lord Christ, it always will. In fact, to be no longer under law, but rather under grace, means that we're no longer, now no longer slaves to sin. We are precisely the opposite. We are slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, slaves of obedience. 
and that by the power of God at work through his grace. So Paul addresses a primary concern. Paul then grounds his explanation in a general principle, and then Paul commends believers at the church at Rome for a righteous response, verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 17, Paul expresses confidence in the members of the church at Rome. Despite the preponderance of error on the part of the legalist or on the part of the antinomian, those in the church at Rome, Paul acknowledged, were genuine believers. And God be thanked. Notice it's not, I'd like to thank you for obeying the gospel, right? I'd like to thank you for turning from your sin to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes, hat in hand, I'd like to thank you for following me, right? No. (laughs) God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who performs the work. God is the reason why they were slaves of sin. God's the reason they were slaves of sin and not are slaves of sin. Do you see? God is the reason why they obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which they were delivered. God is the reason they obeyed. The form of doctrine to which they were delivered refers to the content of our faith. The content of our faith. That content of faith given to them initially in the preaching of the gospel. It needs to be a message that is sufficiently full. An obedience that was the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ, a faith through which they were united to Christ in the likeness of his death to sin, and a faith through which they had been raised to walk in newness of life in the likeness of his resurrection. It was a faith, verse 17, verse 18, through which they were set free from sin and made slaves of righteousness. Their slavery to sin at once ended at the preaching of the gospel when they put faith in Jesus Christ. Your slavery to sin, if you're in Jesus Christ through faith, your slavery to sin ended at once when you put faith in Jesus Christ. Because you're united to Christ now in the likeness of his death. And you're united to Christ in the likeness of his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. His death to sin through faith became your death to sin. You are freed from sin's dominance, freed from sin's mastery the moment that you put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That slavery ended. So why, why, brother, why, sister, would you ignore the instruction of Paul in Romans chapter 6? and continue to present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Why? Knowing, knowing that sin desires to exert an ongoing influence over you, why would you choose to obey sin and its lusts, a path that you know leads to death, a path that you know only increases the force or the power or the influence that sin has over you. A deadly path, right? A deadly path. Choose rather, brother, choose rather, sister, to obey righteousness, to obey God, to present your members as instruments of righteousness to God, bearing the fruit of holiness, the end of which is everlasting life. Slavery to sin ended 
when we submitted ourselves to the call of the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pursue righteousness and obedience to God, amen? And pray in dependence upon the Holy Spirit that we'd have strength to pursue that path as God grows us in greater and greater maturity, in greater and greater strength, in greater and greater resolve to pursue righteousness for his glory. Praise God for his glorious grace, amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we know and we acknowledge that it is your grace at work through the gospel and in the Christian life to end sin's slavery over us, to end sin's dominion over us. And it is even now at work in the lives of genuine Christians to strengthen them, uh, to mature them in their defense against sin, uh, to grow them in their knowledge of you, in their hatred of sin, to end that bent toward sin that they have in their members and to make them trophies of grace uh, whereby they attain to righteousness, increasing righteousness in the Christian life, increasing obedience. Make us, Lord, um, growing, more resolved, more determined, slaves of obedience, slaves of our God, slaves to righteousness. Help us, Lord, with um, considering Paul's instruction in Romans chapter 6 to fight as we are being called to fight Uh, to employ uh, this great wisdom, Lord, that you've revealed to us in in this chapter, in this letter, uh, to fight sin in faith and to be victorious over sin in faith, knowing that Christ's victory over sin is our victory over sin, united to him. Help us, Lord, in the battle. Strengthen us in the battle. Strengthen our resolve. If there's anyone here, Lord, um, struggling struggling in their fight against sin, failing, losing in their battle against sin. Lord, help them to take instruction from your word and by faith in the power of your spirit, fight uh, the good fight of faith to wage holy warfare against sin that they might not be entrapped or hardened in its deceits. And help us to be slaves of our God for your glory, for your everlasting praise of worship, uh, praise and worship. To the, the praise of your glorious grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.